Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Mark Jones. Mark is the principal of Gower College in Swansea, Wales, an institution with its own business training arm. Mark, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Yeah, good to speak to you, Scott. Likewise, Mark, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to come onto the air with us. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast is to really gather together a variety of different perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. Well, there's been so many definitions over the past. The ones that have always taken my, um, uh, ones I've always looked at is they talk about a manager going on a journey, but a leader goes on the journey, but make sure that everyone is on that journey with you. So I've always seen a huge importance in communication and in setting the direction, the way forward with staff and, and then engaging with them to make sure that they're on that journey uh, as well. And I suppose at the same time, well, in today's time with all the challenges as well, it's very easy to be negative about uh, mm-hmm. about different things. There's lots of challenges out there. So I think a leader also is someone who stays really calm. It's that old analogy of a of a swan where everything looks serene above the water, even though their legs are going ten to the dozen below the water. And I think that's an important uh, point for all leaders to take into consideration as well. For certain, yes. So maintaining that sort of level-headedness is hugely important, making everything sort of run seamlessly, even though behind the scenes there is a great deal of pressure and a lot going on. And really, we're seeing that at the moment, aren't we, yeah, with the COVID-19 situation. A lot of people, especially in the business world, have been looking toward business leaders, wondering, of course, what is going on, especially with incomes and when businesses' premises can expect to reopen again. And in reality, the leader at the top of it all may not necessarily know that much more than the people around them. So, <laughs> There's a lot of pressure on them to maintain that cool head and that sort of outward um, sort of steadfastness, isn't there? Yeah, certainly at the present time, you're exactly right. So we haven't got clarity on any on any, on a lot of different things. But I think if you show that you're um, worried, that you're concerned, then that just permeates its way down the organisation. So I think you could be honest mm. and open with with staff, uh, and in some cases you can say, well, you know, we're trying to gather that information and we'll feedback. But here's the long-term direction of travel that we're aiming in. And I think that goes a long way to uh, calm everyone down at a, at a time when, yeah, there is a lot of uncertainty and, and concern out there. So I, I think that's a pivotal role too. Mm. And we've heard a lot of stories as well about, of course, leaders showing that transparency, that reassurance to essentially just give employees that little bit of information that they need. And we've also heard that it's bringing out the best in employees as well. They've been getting on with their roles, whether they've had to continue working on site or whether they've had to adapt to remote working. They're just getting on with it for the good of, of course, um, wherever they work. Um, Do you think, Mark, that it's been a positive experience for yourselves at Gower College um, dealing with this uh, pandemic, and it's really sort of bred some resilience, and it's really bringing out the best in staff there. Yeah, I really do. Um, I think as we went into this, and the kind of introduction of, of for us very much a, a distance learning model, uh, I think a lot did go into, uh, into it with concern. But I, I think what we've tried to do is people have different levels of digital skills and, and different ideas. And we've tried to spread best practice, try to set up a mentor approach, trying to get teachers to talk to other teachers, sharing best ideas. And all of a sudden, there's different ways of delivering, different ways of engaging with students. 
And we're finding in many cases, a lot of students are, are really buying into this process. Certainly the, the lower level students that we work with, we have a, uh, a large, uh, what we call a level three, A level vocational uh, cohort, but we have large numbers of level one, level two students. The engagement we're getting with those students is far exceeds what we what we would have had before. So we're, we're finding some real positives um, in different teaching techniques, different software, different ways of engaging with students, which can only be a long-term benefit as well. So it's not just dealing with the day-to-day challenges that we've got at the moment. It's also looking at maybe different teaching models that reach out and engage with students in new and innovative ways that they really like and can really buy into. So it's a bit of both, really. And from a leadership perspective as well, that adaptability is hugely important, isn't it? Because um, if we don't adapt, if we don't innovate, um, essentially we don't uh, survive in that sense. Oh, absolutely. And in terms of curriculum, is, is, uh, and course materials are changing all the time. I think going forward, we'll see a far bigger uh, inclusion of, of uh, digital, of online technologies within that. You know, it's, it's probably easier with an A-level course than it is with, let's say, a, a vocational catering course or an engineering course. But there are different ways, different tools out there. And if we can share that practice, not just across a large college um, like, like our college, Swansea, but also with other colleges, both in Wales and in England, pull that best resources through, then that can only be benefit for students right across the country. I think that's what we're seeing now is a lot of more detailed partnership working, um, sharing those resources that, that maybe we would have seen without the current challenges. And during this current time as well, what we have seen is a much more heightened recognition of critical workers as well. People who are working within the health services, people who are working within supermarkets, for example, delivery drivers. And if we think about that for a moment in the teaching profession, Mark, I think mentors and teachers are quite often some of the most influential leaders out there in terms of having an impact on individual people's lives. Yes. Um, Do you think that leadership within teaching in that sense is perhaps as recognized as it should be in the UK. And the reason no, why, I, yeah. I don't, I don't think it is. I, I think, um, uh, I think it happens, but I don't think it's probably been recognized mm-hmm. as well outside the professions is what happens inside. Teachers are great influences on students in terms of not just career choices, university choices, but also the whole way of, of learning as an individual. Teachers can engage with students in different ways and, for some students, watching a video is, is fine. For others, they need to be in a classroom. Some students need to go away and, and just study on their own. And teachers have always been closer to that. And I, I don't think that's ever been more important than now, where I suppose more of the learning is done on an individualized basis. So the idea of understanding exactly what makes that student tick and then linking them up to the right um, teacher, the right software, the right um, support, I think it's absolutely critical now, and teachers play a pivotal role in doing that. Mm, that's absolutely right. And the reason I asked that question in the first place, uh, Mark, was because I think when we think of leadership um, in this uh, country, the UK, we're tempted to think immediately of people who are in the public eye, such as politicians, maybe even celebrity sports personalities. And so sure. recognition, particularly for leaders within the business environment, within teaching, it can often fall by the wayside them a little bit. Um, so we, we talked about how inspiring, of course, teachers and mentors can be in that respect. Um, but of course, yourself being a teacher, Mark, who would you say have been some of the inspirations by behind you throughout your career and maybe had an influence on yourself? Um, I suppose I've, I've, had a, I've had a different career. I suppose I, I, I'm, I'm a, as well as being a qualified teacher, I'm a qualified accountant as well. I've worked in, 
in industry and in practice and in, and in higher and further education. There's no big names that stick out for me. What I've taken is people that I've worked with, managers, leaders that I've worked under, and I suppose taking the best bits out of out of them. We've all worked with people who inspire. We've all worked with people who maybe we've been a bit more unsure about. And I think it's about picking up that, those best practices. And I, I, that's certainly on my list. There's half a dozen um, people that I've worked under, whether it was working for an accountancy firm, whether it was working in industry, whether it was working in higher education. But I've certainly learned from and taken away um, the best aspects of what they've done. And I suppose try to build that into what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, so it's a lot of individual people that I could name. Uh, you will have no idea who they are, but they're people who really inspired me over the years and who I've learned a, a great deal out of. And it just goes to show, doesn't it, that a lot of the biggest inspirations in uh, one's life are people who aren't necessarily in the public eye. Of course, we can reel off names of very inspirational people, for example, mm. your Bill Gates's, Nelson Mandela's, um, Mahatma Gandhi's. But the reality is that people who do inspire are just ordinary people who aren't in that sort of public eye, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we learn a lot. We've, we've got about four and a half thousand full-time and around eight thousand part-time students. We, we learn a lot from them as well. You see some of the students uh, who maybe have got uh, they study on a part-time basis, they might have a job, they might have caring responsibilities and you listen to some of their stories and, and they are aspir- absolutely inspirational in terms of the way they're balancing all these different commitments. And so you can learn from, from people that are you know, just starting off on, on their journey, whether that's to university or into work, you can learn from a lot of people. Everyone has those leadership skills in them. And, and the skill is, is getting them out in some way and encouraging them to, to demonstrate those going forward. So there's leaders everywhere we look in every, every walk of life, I'm sure. I think you raise a really important point there, Mark, because as a teacher... And of course, as a business leader, a manager, let's say, it's not just, of course, your role to essentially get the best out of your students or your employees, but also there's a little bit the other way, isn't there? It's about them also nurturing the best out of you as their leader, if you will. Yeah, very much so. It's it's very much a team approach with combined values and, and ideas of what we want to do. Having that team, that core team that can articulate the kind of a values an organisation, what you're trying to achieve as an organisation, and then roll that roll that out as a team across, uh, uh, in our case, an institution, uh, is it, absolutely the way to do it. You, you can't do it as, a, as an individual. You need a, a team on board, a senior team on board that has exactly the same vision as you, and that proactivity to go on and and and, and do something similar. Approach we've got now. There, there are so many challenges out there now working remotely that we've got a whole list of priorities and different senior managers have got responsibilities for each one of those challenges taking the lead and then we all look to support as much as we possibly can and if we think about carrying those values forward into the future now mark before we do wrap things up on the program today do you give me an idea of what you envision the next year or so holding for yourself and for gower college and also (laughs) what you hope to achieve not just in that time in getting through covid19 but also for beyond the pandemic as well um, there's a whole list of things um, we, we need to do. There's the, the short-term um, issues in terms of making sure the students who started on the course were on the courses at March have the opportunity now to, to finish those courses, to gather that information that allows them to progress on. So there's that kind of short-term uh, issue. 
Well, I think long term, this really does open the door to further partnership working. If I'm delivering to a, an A-level class next year um, and there's 30 or 40 students online, then maybe I could partner up with a local school or, or other organizations to share that learning. Um, so I think this more blended line, uh, blended approach, some teaching online, some assessments done in small groups within college when we when we reopen, as we inevitably will. I think there's an opportunity here to work with other organizations in very different ways. If another organization's got a really strong history teacher, then maybe we can learn from that. If we've got a really strong chemistry teacher, then they can learn from us. I think there's a way to pull organizations together so the students get the very best benefit. The same thing is going to happen with universities. We, we have... Um, we have about a thousand students every year that progress onto university, and I, I'm, I suppose I'm concerned that if they left in March, then by um, they, they'll have missed possibly you know, a couple of modules of, of their course. So I think there's a need to work there far closer with universities to make sure those students catch up on that um, curriculum, maybe early on in their in their degree year, but to make sure that they have the opportunity to, to learn that information, which can only uh, uh, act as a, a kind of um, bedrock then to, for them to build on going forward. So I think it's going to open the door to, to a lot more partnership working than maybe there's been in the past. Um, would be one, but th- there's plenty of ways that we can mm. we can engage with industry in in different ways too. Certainly seems as if there's um, a great deal of uh, potential there and um, a good reason to be excited as well about the uh, the future, Mark. And what I think would actually be fantastic is if in the next year, once we start to see these hopes being born out and those relationships develop, we could perhaps even catch up and have you back on the air with us just to discuss how things are getting on in that respect. Yeah, of course. I do think there's lots of opportunities out there. I, I, I really do. Um, uh, and, you know, currently engaging with all different organisations to get their long-term vision of what's happening and, and try to get that, that joint view going forward that we can then work together to, to deliver for the benefit of all the learners so they all get access to the, to the best teachers, the best resources, which can only be good um, for students initially within Swansea, but, but on a wider, uh, a wider range as well. So, yeah, I'm happy to do so. Absolutely. Um, we are unfortunately just about um, out of time on today's programme, uh, Mark, but as I say, I would love to catch up about um, all of this um, in future. And, um, I also think um, it's been a thoroughly insightful experience having you on today's programme. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. I've got to say it's been a huge pleasure, Mark. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed. Nice speaking to you. Nice speaking to you, Mark. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime as well. Yes, Bob. That was Mark Jones, the principal of Gower College. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. 
which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber 
attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of 
getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a credible opposition nor an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, 
they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.